This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. And welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. And on today's show, we're going to be having Simon Black, one of Canadian Dimensions columnists, interviewing Francis Fox Piven, who is an expert in the area of social welfare in America. Also a conversation with Dennis Pilon, also a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. And we'll be talking about the referendum that's going to take place alongside the B.C. provincial election. And that referendum will be about proportional representation. We'll also be having Andre Clement interviewing Propagandi with Music is the Weapon. That's the alert headlines in Around the Left in 7 Days. Parliament's Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration has directed the Government of Canada to immediately stop the deportation of U.S. Iraq War resistors and to establish a program to facilitate permanent resident status for the resistors and their families. A week earlier, members of Parliament from all three opposition parties held a press conference calling on the Harper government to stop the deportation of Kimberly Riviera, the first female Iraq War resistor to come to Canada. Michelle Robidoux, spokesperson for the War Resisters Support Campaign, said it's time for Immigration Minister Jason Kenney and Prime Minister Harper to follow the will of the majority of Canadians and act as directed by Parliament. An Ontario judge has granted RCMP members the right to unionize. The Superior Court judge struck down a section of the RCMP Act that precludes unionization, finding the law unconstitutional. He gave the federal government 18 months to prepare for the decision to take effect, given that it could fundamentally alter the power structure of one of Canada's most important institutions. The Mounted Police Association of Ontario had launched the lawsuit. The RCMP, which has 22,000 officers, is often described as the only force in the country that doesn't have a union. For more than a century, senior police commanders have resisted unionization movements. Canada was the only country that opposed a motion of the United Nations Human Rights Council that deplored the recent Israeli announcements regarding the construction of new housing units for Israeli settlers in the occupied Palestinian territory. The council adopted the resolution by a vote of 46 in favor, one against, and no abstentions. The council deplored the latest Israeli plan to demolish more than 88 houses, which will result in displacing more than 1,500 Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem. The council urged Israel, the occupying power, to reverse the settlement policy in the occupied territories and to immediately stop the expansion of the existing settlements. Omar Khadr's U.S. military defense lawyer was fired last week after a lengthy feud with his superior over the case. Lieutenant Commander William Kubler has reportedly alleged a conflict of interest on the part of his boss, Pentagon Chief Defense Lawyer Colonel Peter Maschiola. Kubler said the colonel supported the continued prosecution of Kadar at the same time as he was supposed to be overseeing his defense. Kubler sought a court order preventing his dismissal until a hearing on a complaint he filed after his dismissal. But the appeal was denied. Kubler alleged Colonel Maschiola demonstrated a disturbing pattern of acting to support the agenda of military prosecutors who want to have Omar tried in the U.S. rather than being repatriated to Canada. The man who died during last week's G20 protests was assaulted by riot police shortly before he suffered a heart attack, according to witnesses' statements received by the UK's Independent Police Complaints Commission. Investigators are examining a series of corroborative accounts that allege Ian Tomlinson, 47, was a victim of police violence in the moments before he collapsed near the Bank of England in the City of London last Wednesday evening. Three witnesses have told the observer newspaper that Mr. Tomlinson was attacked violently as he made his way home from work at nearby newsagents. One claims he was struck on the head with a baton. Running battles erupted and a hotel was set ablaze after thousands of protesters clashed with police near the NATO summit being held in Strasbourg. Riot police used water cannons and tear gas after about 10,000 people turned out for demonstrations in the French city on Saturday. 
A group of about 1,000 particularly violent rioters, some black-clad and masked, led the clashes lobbing petrol bombs, burning tires, smashing windows and ransacking shops on the second day of the summit, police said. Demonstrators from as far as Japan flocked to Strasbourg to campaign against war, capitalism, defence spending and nuclear weapons in view of the assembled leaders. Last Saturday, 10,000 people marched on Wall Street to protest the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and to demand a larger investment in the needs of American communities. The march was in honor of Dr. King and his visionary Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967. Labor, veterans, students, immigrant rights groups, military families, faith-based people, women's groups and community groups created a lively, vibrant march. Reverend James Lawson, co-worker of Dr. King, led the march. He told the gathering, If we want peace to blossom, we must eradicate poverty, racism, sexism, violence, and greed in the U.S. Lawson also bemoaned the fact that 90 million working Americans hover in poverty every day. Several hundred thousand workers, pensioners, immigrants and students filled a Rome park on Saturday in protest at the Italian government's handling of the financial crisis. Led by Italy's largest union, the left-wing Italian General Confederation of Labor, many wore red hats or waved the CGIL's red flag as helicopters circled above Rome's Circo Massimo, an ancient hippodrome. There's too big a gap between what needs to be done and what is being done, CGIL leader Guglielmo Epifani told the throng. The demonstration was in the same park where in 2002, three million people protested a bill that would have annulled a law protecting against unfair dismissal. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the Danish Prime Minister, has been chosen to be the next Secretary General of NATO. Turkey, the only Muslim NATO member, has objected to Rasmussen's appointment, criticizing his handling of a dispute over cartoons of the Prophet Mohammed in 2005. Rasmussen has also angered Turkey by opposing its membership in the European Union. Rasmussen is known for his support of the United States, particularly the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Under his leadership, Denmark sent 700 service personnel to Afghanistan in support of the U.S.-led occupation. Observers note that a chief perceived to be anti-Muslim is not good for NATO, which is currently fighting in a Muslim country. Israeli exporters are losing foreign markets and customers because of a growing boycott of Israeli products, according to the Israel Manufacturers Association. In addition to the problems arising from the global economic crisis, 21% of local exporters report that they are facing problems in selling Israeli goods because of the boycott, mainly from the UK and Scandinavian countries, said the chairman of the association's foreign trade committee. Also, Motorola Israel Limited sold its government electronics department, which made several products for Israelis' military. The sale occurred just two days after a globally coordinated day of action to promote campaigns of boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel. The Palestinian doctor, three of whose daughters and a niece died in the recent Israeli offensive in Gaza, has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. The nomination was made by Belgium's state secretary, who described Dr. Abu al-Aish as a soldier of peace. He was also awarded honorary Belgian citizenship in recognition of his efforts in the service of humanity, said the state secretary. Ever since the family tragedy, Dr. Al-Aish has become an activist for peace and reconciliation between the Palestinians and Israelis. Last week, he moved to Toronto to take up a multi-year appointment at a Toronto hospital. The government of Colombia last week dissolved MSERVA, the city-owned waste disposal company, using riot police and soldiers to evict the workers from their workplace. Meanwhile, at MCALI, the municipal utilities company, two union executives and four fired workers have begun a hunger strike to protest a government-appointed trustee's decision to fire still more union members. Sixteen members of Cali's public sector unions have been killed since 2004, including union executive Carlos Bentoncourt. The Canadian Union of Public Employees is asking for email and letters to Colombia's president and cabinet ministers because their government needs to know the world is watching. And those were the alert headlines. And now, Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of April 9th, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in Seven Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in Seven Days. 
Chris Arsenault reads from his new book, Blowback, a Canadian history of Agent Orange and the War at Home, on Tuesday, April 14th in Halifax. The book tells the story of military and economic currents that allowed the deadly dioxin Agent Orange to be sprayed around New Brunswick. The reading is at the Dalhousie Student Union Building from 7 to 9 p.m. On Thursday, April 16th, Rabble.ca presents What's Wrong with Our Newspapers, a discussion with Linda McQuaig, Wayne McPhail, and Peter C. Newman at the Koffler Auditorium in Toronto. Tickets are $10, free for Rabble members. The Canada-Bolivia Solidarity Committee hosts the launch of Judy Rebick's new book, Transforming Power, From the Personal to the Political. Rebek will introduce the book and discuss it with a panel that includes Adriana Paz of the Bolivia Solidarity Committee, Seth Klein of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, and Indigenous activist Michael Krebs. The event is on Thursday, April the 16th, starting at 7 p.m. at the UBC Bookstore in Robson Square. On Saturday, April 18th, Fair Vote Canada holds its annual meeting and conference in Vancouver. The theme of the conference is 24 Days to Victory, a countdown to the May 12th BC referendum on voting reform. Featured speakers at the conference include Sam Gindin and Judy Rebeck. The afternoon will focus on plans for the referendum campaign. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes and I'm joined now by Dennis Pilon. Dennis Pilon teaches political science at the University of Victoria and is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. He is one of Canada's foremost experts on proportional representation. We caught up with him today to talk about British Columbia's May 12th provincial election, which will also feature a second referendum on electoral reform. Welcome back to Alert, Dennis. Thanks for having me. So the provincial election and referendum is about a month away. Quickly fill us in on the current standings in the B.C. legislature and give us your take on the Gordon Campbell government. Well, the current standings are, of course, we have a, a liberal government. Uh, the New Democrats are the official opposition. They're the only two parties in the legislature. Uh, the liberals have got a majority. The New Democrats got about 33 seats in the House uh, in the 30s somewhere, give or take. Uh, the parties are fairly close in terms of their popular vote. The last election, there was less than 4% spread between the two parties. And right now, the New Democrats are trailing the liberals, but the New Democrats tend to trail in the polls. Their real strength doesn't show up until Election Day. So that's where we're at. Uh, the campaign's already started. Um, the various, you know, both the Liberals and the, and the NDP and the Greens are getting their uh, ads on the Internet and some television ads going. And it's very interesting to see how the two parties are trying to frame the election. Uh, liberals very much, you know, hey, we're the guys you can trust. We, uh, you know, we can run the economy. And the, the NDP taking pot shots in a number of different directions around gang-related crime and, uh, and, and venality, you know, the idea that the liberals are a government, you know, for their friends at the expense of the public. Uh, tell us a little bit about how long the liberals have been running things, and let's talk about their uh, tenure as the uh, provincial party in B.C., well, the Liberals got elected in uh, in 2001. This is a rejuvenated Liberal Party, not the old Liberal Party. There was a provincial Liberal Party from the 50s to the 70s, which was a pretty centrist crew. Uh, this new uh, Liberal Party is kind of the renewed social credit party. It's the center-right vehicle with some important differences. Uh, the old social credit was a, a rural-based party. They had some urban support, but, you know, they really were overrepresented in B.C.'s rural area. An important court case in the late 80s changed all that, basically gave urban areas more influence. And today's liberals are, are much more entrenched in urban areas, not as reliant on the rural areas. And that creates an interesting dynamic where uh, it's not that the NDP can necessarily take those votes from the liberals, but sometimes a third force looks like they might enter in a new right-wing party uh, that could hurt the liberals. And uh, quickly, the good and the bad of the Campbell years? 
so far? Well, um, gosh, you really put me on the spot there. Uh, I mean, the bad list is pretty long. Uh, I mean, this is a government, I, I think it's fairly fair to say, has sold out things to their friends. Um, you know, they've, they've hurt, you know, what, uh, what kind of weak welfare state we have in British Columbia. They've cut back on it. Uh, it's, it's a disaster, you know, for poor people, for working people. Um, you know, it's, it's good news for those who are doing, who are doing all right. So, you know, I, I mean, on the good, I, I don't know. I don't see that, that much that's good about what the Campbell Liberals have done. Well, how about the opposition that the NDP has provided? Well, I wish I could say that it was the opposite uh, portrait here, but it's not. Uh, the New Democrats have offered fairly lackluster opposition, and in some cases, pretty cynical, uh, cynical maneuvers. I mean, their take on the carbon tax was a fairly cynical ploy. Uh, they opposed the liberal government's carbon tax, uh, and they pitched it as an ax-the-tax approach. I mean, come on. You know, the, the NDP are going to champion tax cuts. That's going to be, that's the alternative that we have in this province. I mean, two parties that champion tax cuts. So it's been very disappointing to see the New Democrats back away from any kind of systemic critique of the basic thrust of this government. Um, but, you know, their attitude is we can't win in the media, and we're just going to wait for the liberals to fall out of power, and then essentially they'll inherit it because they'll be the only ones left. What are the main issues in this election? Oh, it's it's too early to say. It's 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 too early to say which you know, I've been shocked at the things that haven't stuck uh to uh to this government. Uh all kinds of things have happened. I mean one of the issues that the New Democrats are trying to push is the B C rail issue and the fact that, you know, here was a major public asset uh sold off uh under questionable um uh conditions. Now it appears there was all kinds of insider influence on the decision. Uh it, the sale itself was breaking a campaign promise that the Liberals said they wouldn't sell B C rail. So there's lots of stuff. Um, that we could uh, we could take up uh, now whether or not those things will make it into the media mainstream you know is, is, is very hard to say well tell us about the role the greens are going to play in this election the Greens are an interesting force because they are all partisan. I mean, the party is both left-wing and right-wing at the same time. And they draw votes from both sides of the political spectrum. You know, many people see the Greens as a spoiler on the NDP side, but that's not the case. You know, the reason the Campbell's liberals have brought in things like a carbon tax is precisely to win over uh, some of those marginal Greens to the liberal cause. Uh, we had a lot of close uh, races last time. The popular vote was very close. This time, we've got a new electoral map. We've got a couple of new ridings. Uh, you know, the, the liberals are not taking for granted that the rise of the Greens will only hurt the NDP. Now, before we move on to a discussion about proportional representation, I know a lot can happen in a month before the campaign gets really into its uh, nitty-gritty. But w at this point, what do you think will be the likely outcome of the election? Will it be close you know, it, I think it is going to be close in terms of the popular vote, but whether or not that translates in, into a close result at the level of seats is hard to say. It depends on where the votes will fall. This election is going to divide on how we understand the economy. If people are still, you know, the tax-cutting, um, casino capitalist kind of supporters, you know, I'll put my money in stocks, I'll take the equity out of my home uh, because my house price is going up, then I think the liberals will get reelected. But there's an indication out there that a group of people who are not used to suffering are now feeling the pinch of this economic crisis. And if they believe that tax cuts and this other stuff is not going to help them get through these tough times, this is an opportunity for the New Democrats, because this group of voters have a strong sense of entitlement, and they do vote. So, uh, but whether or not the NDP are clever enough to take that up and make it political, I don't see the evidence uh, so far. Now let's uh, talk about the referendum. So tell us about uh, the question. Is it uh, basically the same as it was in 2005? No. The question in 2005 was, you know, do you agree or disagree with the recommendation of the Citizens' Assembly that B.C. adopt the single transferable vote, STV? That question arguably was biased in favor of the Citizens' Assembly because, you know, people didn't know anything about STV, but they did know something about the Citizens' Assembly, and they kind of thought, hey, those are nice folks. They don't have any axe to grind. How could I say no to what they want to do? This time the question is, which of these two systems do you prefer, the existing first-past-the-post system or the single transferable vote as recommended by the Citizens' Assembly? So the dynamic of the question is different, and it could influence the result. Oh, well, tell us how it's phrased this time. 
Well, that's that's how it's phrased this time. It's phrased that you know you choose you know one you you either choose the existing system first past the post or you choose the SDV as as recommended by the Citizens Assembly. That uh, you know now people have to ask themselves, hmm, you know, what do I know about this topic? And given the coverage that it's gotten, they're not going to know very much. We know from the study of referendums that when people have low information, they tend to vote things down. So that's going to be a challenge. Well, here's a chance then. Uh, Dennis, please give us some uh, information about it. Here's what people need to know. Uh, they need to know what would be the general results that the different systems would produce. You know, if you listen to the No SDV group here in, in BC, they'd have you believe that if you, if you can't be an SDV returning officer, you should vote this thing down. That's just bunk. People don't need to know all the details of how the system is counted. I mean, certainly people in Ireland who've used the system don't know how it's counted, but they've twice voted to keep it. They voted to keep it because they like the results that the system produces. And that's the same here. People don't need to know a lot. They just need to ask themselves, what kind of general results do I think would be good for British Columbia? Our current system tends to create majority governments out of a minority of votes. Government gets in. They can do a lot of stuff if they want. And it's fairly clear who did it. So in that sense, you know, there might be a degree of accountability because you know that was the party that introduced the policies. If that's the way you think government should function, our current system does that. And you've got a local riding with a local member, you know, who will help you with bureaucratic problems. If you think that our system should be more accurate in terms of the results, if you think that it would be better that the results in our election reflect what people voted for, if you're not that worried about our ability to get things done in a minority government or a coalition government, if you don't like the way that you feel orphaned under the current system, if you think a multi-member riding with a bunch of members would give you more chance to be heard, then STV is the choice for you. That system is going to produce those kinds of results. That's basically the choice. That's what people need to decide in terms of the kind of democracy they want in British Columbia. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the 2005 referendum and uh, how, in, in, as opposed to a 50% majority, a, a 60% was set as the, bench, the benchmark, which uh, resulted in an unsuccessful referendum. So is there anything different about the campaign this time around? And what do you think the chances are for a better result? It's going to be tough. You know, I got to be frank, it's very, very hard to get, you know, more than 60% in a, in a referendum. You know, people who study referendums will talk about the kind of natural bifurcation that most referendum results fall between 40 and 60% of the vote. So introducing the supermajority rule, you know, pretty much right off the bat rigged this against change. Uh, it, it's pretty unfair. I mean, it has the effect of inflating the votes of people who want to keep the system and diluting the votes of those people uh, who want change. And, and that's pretty unfair when we think that these systems were not introduced with supermajority rules. They were just introduced with, you know, 50% plus one, just like everything else we introduce in our legislatures. So it, it's a real double standard that the government uh, is putting into place. So that's going to be a challenge. It's not going to be a case of just getting another 3%. You know, last time the referendum got 57, 58% of the votes. We don't just have to dig up another 3% this time. Uh, it's it's going to be a challenge to remobilize people around the issue and and get them excited about this opportunity. Can you direct our listeners to uh, a website, perhaps, with uh, some of those details about a uh, single transferable vote? Well, there, there's the yes and no sites. I mean, it's funny, you know, the referendum is a choice between our existing system and, and SDV, but there's actually nobody defending our current system. You know, they're either supporting or attacking SDV. Uh, if you want a bunch of uh, distortions and incorrect information about SDV, the no SDV is your stop. Uh, I mean, it's the most unreliable information uh, you will find. Uh, I don't think any credible academic, even if they supported our current system, would be able to defend the things that are going on there. The Yes site certainly has more information, I think more neutral information. Uh, they're probably a little bit enthusiastic. Uh, some of the claims they make may be a little bit over the top. Um, Ultimately, I think people are going to have to root around uh, and look for some sources. If I can, I would recommend my own book, The Politics of Voting, Reforming Canada's Electoral System, gives you a pretty good breakdown of, of what's at stake in the debate. I mean, I'm a supporter of STV, but you know, all the arguments for our current system are in there. And I think you can find independent sources like IDEA. You know, IDEA, which is an international democracy institute, uh, they have a lot of information on their site about, you know, voting systems in different countries. But as I say, I mean, I think the most important thing that people need to understand is the results. You know, what would be the results of using these different systems? And 
On the whole, when we look at the experience in other countries, in Ireland or other countries that use PR, you know, they get stuff done, right? They have coalition governments. Um, they don't have any more elections than we do, but they do manage to get the people's business done. And they do it by representing a greater group of people, uh, you know, in the polity. Well, My Dennis, view is, altogether, there's not much risk in, in, in taking up STV. Well, Dennis Pilon, thank you very much for giving us your time and expertise here on Alert. Thanks for having me. Francis Fox Piven is widely recognized as one of America's most thoughtful and provocative commentators on America's social welfare system. Political scientist, activist, and educator, Francis was born in Calgary, Alberta in 1932. She grew up in the U.S. and for many years has held the position as Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Canadian Dimension columnist Simon Black asks Francis Fox Piven about the Obama presidency and American social movements. Francis Fox Piven, it's widely acknowledged now, even among mainstream economists, that we are sliding into a very deep, lasting recession, possibly even a depression. How has the Obama administration responded thus far? He doesn't have a transforming agenda. He has a political agenda for Barack Obama. Now, I say that without a sense of grievance or anything like that. Right. I, if Barack Obama wasn't a very crafty, skillful politician, he wouldn't have won the nomination of the Democratic Party, and he wouldn't have won the general election. The question of whether he can, move, can and will move to the left is a question that he won't answer from within the ranks of his own cabal. It's a question that has to be answered by the broader left. Uh, it's a question that will depend on whether he's pushed and pushed hard. And if he is pushed hard, he'll move. He will move to the left. He's capable of moving to the left. Now, it's true that if you look at particularly the policies with regard to the financial sector, you could get discouraged that they're, you know, they're taking the wealth of ordinary Americans, including poor Americans, and they're using it to bail out the banks. That is what they're doing. Uh, but that's also what... F that's the way FDR moved when he first took power, too. He, one of his first legislative initiatives was the National Industrial Recovery Act. And while that act included a symbolic concession to labor, it endorsed symbolically the right to organize, but had no provisions for enforcing that right. Uh, what the act also did, more importantly, it gave the big corporations the right to form cartels with government authority to fix production and to set prices. So the legendary FDR, you know, our hero, um, bent in the same direction until he was forced to bend the other way. So. I think the things are going as one should have expected them to go. Let's talk a little bit about those movements then, whether it's the trade union movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement. There's a demonstration planned for this afternoon uh, in Wall Street. And the list of demands uh, that I saw on the flyer was uh, end, end the bailout of the banks, bail out the people, living wage, and to wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and so on. How ambitious is the left's agenda right now? What does it need to be? And how ready is it to mobilize and put the, the sort of pressure on the, Obama, uh, on the Obama administration that you, that you think is necessary to push him to the left? I think that the question of pressure or power is crucial. And that isn't where the left usually begins. 
Usually the left begins by saying, oh, we've got to develop our agenda, uh, our program, our policy blueprint. Uh, we've got to have our demands in order. Uh, you know, I think that the left has an array of demands that are reasonable. They're all short-term demands. They're uh, not demands for the reorganization of American capitalism. Uh, but, yeah, end the war. Uh, yeah, a green economy. Yes, do something about jobs. End foreclosures. Uh, and stop giving taxpayer money away to the banks at least without taking over those banks. Right. Uh, I don't think our problem really is having the right demands. The people who think that think that what the left movements accomplish is a result of the demands that they articulate and how the power structure responds to their demands. Uh, I think that it's more reasonable to wonder how the movement really presses its cause, what forces it sets in motion. Uh, perfectly obvious that we want to end foreclosures, for example. Perfectly obvious that we should take a trillion dollars or so back from the military machine. A lot of things are perfectly obvious, but the left has to have the leverage, they have to have the threat power to make those demands real. So how, does, how do movements exercise pressure? I don't think it's by flinging banners across avenues uh, or uh, uh, reproducing blueprints for new policies. I think it's by uh, causing so much disruption, disorder in the workings of the normal institutions of the society that there is no choice but to begin to make concessions. Maybe the concessions won't even be to the demands articulated by the movement. I think that often happens. Uh, but unless the left finds the wherewithal to really uh, throw sand in the gears of the complicated machinery that is American society, I don't think its demands will be met. It just won't happen. Now, who's going to do that? You know, it's very, very hard to say. There is no instance, to my knowledge, and I do know a little about this, of any social scientist correctly predicting the emergence of a movement. Right. None. Uh, maybe C.L.R. James had an inkling about the civil rights movement in the early 1950s, but without possible exception, nobody's ever predicted the emergence of a movement. Having said that, I still think that there will be a movement, because there's always, there are always movements. And there are always movements, especially at junctures when people are, well, partly frightened, partly hurting, but when they're angry. And that's what's going on right now. It's not only that people are losing their jobs and their pensions, and that's frightening, but they are really pissed at the way in which the titans of finance have run away with the country. And that happens very rarely, especially in the United States, where we, you know, we've nourished a culture of worship of the rich, but not now. Uh, so well, that's a good sign. Uh, and I expect that workers will be very active in this movement, uh, especially workers that are losing their jobs. The, we've seen a little bit of this in England and in France, but especially in England, the sit-downs have been spreading. Uh, the, I, I also think that 
African Americans are going to be very important in the movement, especially lower class African Americans who have been very much under the gun for 40 years, under the gun of neoliberalism, which has targeted uh, especially young African American blacks, African American women, uh, men uh, with incarceration, the penal system, and also welfare uh, reform. So, uh, and the student movement, students are good because they're already sort of coagulated in the universities and right. the colleges, so they have greater capacity for quick collective action. So I think there are a lot of possibilities. I'm not so sure about the women's movement, uh, because the class dimension of the women's movement is very murky, I think. Mm -hmm. And this is a class moment in American history where the class issues are emerging uh, with a boldness that you rarely see in the United States. One of the largest social movements to uh, arrive on the American scene of recent years is the immigrants' rights movement. and. Uh, May 1st is fast approaching, where the rest of the world sees this as a usually a celebration or mobilization of, of workers. In the United States, it takes on a slightly different dynamic in the sense that it's a massive mobilization of immigrants in, in cities across America. How do we see this new and powerful movement playing out in the context of this economic crisis? I think it could be very, very important. I it's, it's a new movement, and uh, there isn't a long tradition of May Day actions by immigrants at all. Uh, the slogan about, you know, a day without immigrants, a day without immigrant workers, is a very recent vintage. Uh, and that movement, you know, it exploded into the uh, into public view, and in reaction to it, the right-wing crazies in the Republican Party uh, talk, you know, started pushing for uh, more money to be spent on fences around, uh, across the border and stuff like that, and uh, raids on pl and places of employment of immigrants. And that was a, a little chastening. People got scared of that. You know, social movements are complicated a political phenomenon, they also depend on electoral politics. They're not mainly electoral politics, but they depend on uh, the protection that they can get from electoral politics. And Obama being the President of the United States is very, very good for an immigrant rights movement. I, it, it, given the numbers involved and given the hardships that will be suffered by immigrants with the downturn in the economy and the difficulty in going back and forth across the border. Anyway, the Mexican economy is getting trashed too. Uh, I think that immigrant rights is going to be very, very important in the sort of configuration of different movements uh, that make their imprint on the shape of American society in the coming years. Francis Fox Piven, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Simon. You are listening to Alert and an extended edition of Music is the Weapon. I'm Audrey Clément. And today on our show, our guest is the co-lead singer of uh, seasoned punk rock band Winnipeg's Own Propagandi. Chris Hanna, welcome to Alert. Thanks, Andre. Thanks for having me. It is uh, truly our pleasure. Um, so I understand you've just released a new album um, quite recently. And uh, I, I've always been quite intrigued by the at least the last two albums, the, the titles that you've given uh, to them. The last album you released was called 
Potemkin City Limits, which was a reference to the end days of the Roman Empire. Now, this new album is entitled Supporting Cast. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's the name of a song on the record. Yes. Uh, it wasn't my first choice for the record title, but I got voted down. So uh, we ended up with that. And uh, um, the cast and supporting cast, is uh, it ends with an E in this one, um, referencing perhaps a caste system mm-hmm. uh, and implying a global historical caste system that's been in, in existence ever since people first started concentrating wealth and power at the expense of other people's uh, rights and freedoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, um, in general, that's a theme on the record. It was a theme in the cover art that we had done by uh, Kent Monkman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it, just, it all seemed to kind of gel together. And uh, people seemed to want to call the record supporting cast more than what I wanted to call it. So, Well, there you go. You lost. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the artist. Uh, so, so the artwork is related to, uh, to this supporting cast theme. Can you talk to us about the artwork well, it's, uh, it's, for the album? It's, it's pretty unbelievable stuff. Sure, yeah. It's, it's related only by, I think, inference um, and by coincidence. Um, I'd, I'd gone to the Winnipeg Art Gallery to see Kent Monkman's uh, exhibition back, I think, last summer mm-hmm. uh, or last spring. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen his stuff in person, but... Uh, yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the, 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 the artwork that ended up being the cover art for this record, uh, it's called The Triumph of Mischief. Mm-hmm. And the actual painting is about, it must have been 15 feet by 10 feet, um, just it's mind-blowing to stand in front of it and uh and even when it's kind of reduced down to this tiny cd or or record size it's it still, still uh, it, it still seems pretty effective yeah exactly it's still an epic uh, epic picture um yeah. now moving on where um th- there's definitely been an evolution in the band's sound uh over over now what almost two decades of uh, of being together yeah that's right um so which which it has led many people to ask the question uh, are you guys bangers or punks? <laughs> well, when me and George started the band, he would have called himself a punk and I would have called myself a banger. That was in like 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a combination of, of a lot of loud, heavy music that we've always appreciated over the years. Mm-hmm. Back, back when we were kids, we were listening to stuff like Voivod, The Nils, Subhumans, creator so you know running the gamut of of heavy loud music it wasn't necessarily um all music that could be pigeonholed the the scene back then was quite a bit different and a lot more diverse than the quote-unquote punk scene you might uh mainstream punk (laughs) scene that you hear about today on tv or something but yeah so to us it's always just the evolution in our sound is is mostly due to us getting closer and closer to the original vision we had for the band when we were teenagers but totally unable to play our instruments well, let's, uh, let's listen to what you're talking about. This is the title track from the new album, the song and album entitled Supporting Cast.
you are listening to Alert Radio and an extended edition of Music is the Weapon. I'm Audrey Clément, and today we are joined by Chris Hanna, co-lead singer of Propagandi, Winnipeg's pride and joy, I must say. Uh, now, Chris, you, you, I understand you, you do write a lot of the lyrics in, uh, for, for the band? Uh, yeah, it's sort of a collective effort, but I think um, they come from kernels from different members of the of the band initially, and mm-hmm. then everybody tries to chime in a little bit on them. So, mm-hmm. I I I've heard over the years that you you tend to use a lot of satire in your, in your songwriting, and and it kind of walks the line between humor and cynicism uh, sometimes. Where where do you get that from? Uh, well, I think everything that ends up on our records. Uh, uh, evolves from conversations that we have here as a band in the basement, and uh, our prime directive as a band is to entertain ourselves down mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And if we have, if somebody comes in and makes a comment about something they've, you know, heard in the news or something that's happened locally, it creates a conversation, and uh, which is invariably interspersed with cynicism and sarcasm, and uh, sometimes it, it becomes uh, enough of a enough of a conversation to evolve into a song. Like it generates enough interest amongst us that we feel like we're having a fundamental insight about, you know, a revelation about something, and it ends up becoming a song. So, Well, well that's good. That, that kind of provides me a little bit of context then for, for where we're going to go and, and the next song that we're going to play on, on the show today. Um, now, it, it would be definitely laughable to say that propaganda is a patriotic or, or nationalistic, but what is no laughing matter for you guys is uh, our national pastime, the game of hockey. Uh, can, you, can you talk to us about your love of hockey? Uh, yeah, it, uh, I think like a lot of uh, Canadian males, we were growing up in the 70s. Um, the culture of hockey was pretty much foisted on your life, mm-hmm. uh, especially growing up in a small town like Portage La Prairie. You know, as when I was five years old, they threw some skates on me and told me I was on a team playing this game I had no idea about. And over the years, you know, that that's just second nature to be interested so in they, that culture. So they brainwashed you? Essentially, yeah. You're essentially, you know, you grow up with it and you begin, you learn to love it. And uh, that, you know, the interest in the sport uh, has never receded for me. I've always been interested in the, the skill, the speed, the drama of, of the game, even the, you know, the behind-the-scenes drama of the game. But at the same time, over the years, as I've transformed, perhaps politically, about, you know, in my, how I see the world, uh, I've diverged from hockey in that sense, which, in, in my mind, uh, these days is essentially a, a mouthpiece for uh, for elite Western interests, especially in Canada, uh, for uh, uncritically advocating uh, on behalf of uh, imperialist ventures overseas, you know, and just and in terms of population control, unquestioned patriotism, you know, that that sort of which I think I consider all forms of child abuse, since the game is essentially uh, referred to as a kids' game, even at the elite level. And, and and there's a song on the new album entitled "Dear Coach's Corner." Uh, I I imagine you guys, after so many years, just had to take your stab at uh, at Don Cherry uh, at some point. Is that what happened? Yeah. It, again, just from you know, how many times can we show up to practice, you know, on a Sunday and talk about the, you know, hockey night in Canada from the night before, and what Cherry had to say, and not and have that not eventually become a song. It was it was inevitable for us. And, and I think just something that, you know, kind of needs to be said anyway, is that there seems to be, I mean, a lot of musicians in Canada seem to want to attach themselves to the, you know, the hockey culture wagon, but they do it uncritically, you know. But there's, there's actually dangerous aspects to the culture of, of hockey, at least in the, you know, the, 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 the corporate professional sports world. Again, in terms of uh, all these armed forces appreciation nights and RCMP appreciation nights. Um, it just—it's a little too much for people who, uh, who I think are a little more critical of of the mob. Well, uh, on that note, let's listen to a second song from Propagandi's new album. We've been speaking with Chris Hanna, uh, one of the lead singers from the band. 
This one is entitled Dear Coach's Corner. That was sickening last week, by the way. What? Uh, what is going junk. on with you here? That's not. What is this stuff on here? We're hockey night in Canada and we're talking about saving the world and all that stuff. Let's talk hockey. Well, that's the whole idea behind December yeah. the 25th. Let's talk about some good guys. Okay. Let's talk about the troops. <laughs> Listening to Alert and an extended edition of Music is the Weapon. I'm Audrey Clément, and today we're joined by uh, the lead singer of Propagandi, Mr. Chris Hanna. Uh, Chris, I, I was watching the new Bill Mahar movie uh, the other day. Uh, I believe it's called Religious, and they interviewed uh, an Arab rap artist named Propa Gandhi. Uh, has this created any confusion from your fans? Not, not in regards to that movie, but uh, many, many years ago. He's been around for a long time, like as long as we have. And I remember, I think he played in Seattle in 1993 or something. And uh, that was the only time people were confused. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that there is actually a background story to that because it was the first thing that came to my mind when, uh, when I was watching the movie the other day. Um, so propaganda has been... Uh, You've been involved in a, a variety of causes uh, over the years. Um, I, just to think of a few, I, I, I know you've been uh, very much in support of Aboriginal groups such as uh, the blockade in, in Grassy Narrows, uh, issues happening in Haiti, Palestine. Um, you know what? What what is coming? What are what are the issues that you're concerned with uh, these days? Well, every one of those, still. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Really, in things haven't gotten better. Um, well, um, outside of Grassy Narrows, who I think uh, reached some sort of agreement or stalemate right now with, uh, with what's going on out there, I think all the other ones are obviously perhaps even worse than they, than they were before. But mm -hmm. I think generally, anytime you see somebody getting fucked over by, by people who are far more powerful and have more access to resources, it's just, you know, it feels like the least you can do would be to know lend some paltry hand to them in, in some respect you know i think generally we're we're motivated by that you can't do everything but you, i think you got to try to do something especially when you come from a privileged background like we do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but but e even having said that you know five years ago if you would have been talking to people we're, we're in the thick of of all this war uh George W. Bush is the, the president uh, of the United States. It, it seemed pretty clear to a lot of people that the world was going to hell. Um, do you feel that there's been a change? Like, uh, for instance, what, what, would, uh, what do you think about Obama? Oh, well, uh, I guess, you know, I, I always start with this caveat 
that uh, I watched his uh, acceptance speech the night of the elections, and I found it pretty powerful, you know, just seeing different faces for once smiling in the crowd, uh, people who had never felt like they had anything, you know, mm-hmm. anybody mm-hmm. Um, pierced through the, you know, the, uh, the glass ceiling of, of a de facto white supremacy, you know. Um, so you finally got a, a different colored face in, in, this, uh, in the White House. And in that sense, you know, what, what that could do for a young person's self-esteem in, in the U.S., you know, I'm not going to discount that totally. But once you get past that stuff and you look at, you know, the infrastructure that this guy has been, has achieved this, this office through and look at his, his list of campaign donors and try to be realistic about who he services first, which is obviously his, his corporate campaign donors before he serves the people, then people have to realize that he's no messiah. He's a politician. Politicians are typically opportunists, and the system that he's been elected through is still a system that uh, pays lip service to people and pays primarily service to the corporations that get them elected. So, He, he was actually a motivational speaker before he was a politician. You know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> Makes sense. I could. Yeah, well, yeah, it does make sense. But people are going to have to hold his feet to the fire, I think, if they if they want uh, any of the change that he was uh, talking about so much during his campaign. Um, the the ban has stayed in in Winnipeg uh, over all these years. You're you're still here. Is it is it because the it's just a cheap place to live? Is that why? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I no. It's just uh, I guess it's a familiar place. Um, it seems to match our personalities a little more than any other any other city we've been to. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I can't really put a finger on why, but we've never had any interest in going anywhere else. Is it is it perhaps because there's a sense of community? Uh, there's that. Obviously, there's there's community everywhere, but maybe there's a little. Maybe there's a little more here, or at least there's more that we're familiar with here in Winnipeg. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know why. <laughs> Okay, we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, Chris, we're, we're pretty much at the end of our interview. Thank you so very much for, for joining us on Alert today. Well, I've, I've had my chance to pick the last two songs uh, the, that we featured on the show today. Could uh, could you do this? Do us the honor and, and pick the last one we're going to we're going to showcase? Sure. I'd like to pick the uh, the first uh, song from the record, Night Letters, which is a song uh, Todd wrote. And, uh, I find that song very heavy and moving. I I couldn't have made a better choice myself. That's actually the one I was hoping you would uh, you would pick. So, oh, right on. So uh, you have been listening to Alert and, and our uh, mu- extended edition of Music is the Weapon feature interview with uh, co-lead singer um, and founder of Propagandi, Chris Hanna. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Andre. I really appreciate it. That is Alert Radio for the week of April 9th, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. We'll see you next week. Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soon Wallop of the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Round the Left in Seven Days. Andre Clement for Music is the Weapon. Technical producer Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. 
for today's episode. You can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com. Yeah.